Who says the Bible has to be boring? On the contrary, the Bible is the most thrilling book in the world. It's the only book with an invitation to join the very narrative you are reading. My goal is to be like your time-traveling tour guide, taking you into an exploration of scripture in search of precious treasure. Timeless, life-giving truths that inform us of who God is, who we are, and how the story of everything really is His story. I invite you to join me as we learn to read the story, trust the story, and live the story, because there's no greater adventure than knowing the God of the Bible. I'm Brayden Brookshire, and this is Adventures in Theology. Let's read Revelation 22, verses 1 through 2. Let's start there. And he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, In the middle of the street and of the city and on both sides of the river is the tree of life, producing twelve fruits, yielding its fruit according to every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. Sound familiar? Well, it should, because as you read this, John wants us to read Revelation 21 and 22 in light of Genesis 1 and 2. We should feel a sense of biblical nostalgia. Genesis begins with the first Eden, and Revelation ends with the final Eden. It's just as we concluded last week. We are longing to return to a place we have never been. And to say that Eden has been restored is to not do it justice to what the scripture is saying, because it's even greater than Eden. And so I want to show you, let's observe some of the contrast between the original Eden and the new Eden. And this is a contrast that's not just from the verses we read, it's inclusive of all other verses. Some we've talked about, some we haven't, but just a simple contrast here, okay? So in the original creation, we have the first Eden. In the new creation, we have the final Eden. In the original creation, uh, in, in the first Eden, we had the presence of evil lurked. We had the serpent. The serpent was present there. And if you have a serpent who, you know, Satan, in the Garden of Eden, well, it can't be a truly perfect place because why is the presence of evil there? Whereas in the new creation, the presence of evil is banished. It's serpentless. There is no such thing as evil anymore. Not even the temptation of evil will exist. Evil will have no place in the new creation. So in the first Eden, then we also had chaos in the form of the sea. In the sea, if you read Genesis, uh, you know, it needed subduing. It was this wild, chaotic force. And in the new creation, the sea, uh, being an emblem and symbol of chaos, has been subdued and banished. The sea was no more. Not that there's no more water, but that chaos, evil, death, all the things that the sea represented, uh, which you can go back and listen to, um, is banished. It's gone. So also in the first Eden, we had humanity had hearts that are innocent, but still had the potential for sin. And that's, they, they only could have fell into sin if they had the potential for it. But in the new Eden, we have hearts that are sanctified and cannot sin. More about that in a little bit. In the first Eden, the tree of life was present, but it was on probation and even then restricted after sin. If you read Genesis 3.24, you'll notice how God makes a comment that's quite interesting. It's something along the lines of how, like, uh, let's remove the tree of life. Let's remove them from the garden so that they don't eat of the tree and gain immortality. And it's like, wait a second. They never ate of the tree of life. They did not. It was on probation. They never got it. 
So with the tree of life being there, uh, it, it, well, with the serpent being there and also the tree of life being there, you have the presence of evil and temptation, but you also have the presence of life, but it's on probation. And this looming in the balance of which one are you going to choose? And obviously they made the wrong choice, but it's quite dramatic and more than we tend to make Eden out to be. And then so in the new Eden, we have the tree of life. Again, it shows up and this time it's unrestricted. We get to partake of it. It's obtained. And it's not just a tree of life, singular. It's trees of life, plural. That's amazing. It's not just one place. It's, 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 uh, it's a pervasive garden of trees. Not just the one tree of life, the trees of life. In the first Eden, we had marriage between Adam and Eve, and that's a great thing. In the new Eden, we have marriage between Christ and the church. More on that in a moment. And last but not least, overall, just the first Eden is this, if I had to summarize it, it's just a fragile state. It's this beautiful, awesome, great gift of a garden, and not bashing on it by any means, but it was fragile. It was holding in the balance as long as humanity didn't mess it up. The new Eden is enduring. It will not be God's plan. This time, this new creation will not be messed up. Partly because we will not be messed up. We will not only be innocent, we will be changed. And so, yes, the first two verses of Revelation 22 give us a little bit of a picture of this new Eden. And it reveals a life-giving garden that will undo the effects of sin in the present life. There are two main elements in the Edenic garden that demand our attention. There's the river of the water of life and the tree of life. And both are, well, life-giving elements that are given by God and promote an environment of vibrant, unending existence. That's the kind of feelings we should have when we read that. And now, while the river of the water of life in Revelation 22 has rich symbolism, I do believe this is not negating the fact that there's going to also be lush, flowing rivers uh, in in the new creation. And so you notice how it's uh, it's said to be bright. The word for bright, you know, let's go read that again in Revelation 22. Uh, bright as crystal, flowing out from the throne of God in the Lamb. Okay, so it's bright as crystal. Uh, so that word bright in the Greek, it's a cool word. It says lampros. Lampros, I think of lamp, and that's an, always an easy way to remember it. A lamp is bright. So uh, it's lampros, which is the same word used to describe Jesus as the bright and morning star in Revelation twenty two sixteen. It's bright. So since we've already seen that uh, in, in previous episodes and such, as we go through Revelation, that uh, everything in the new creation, including the people inhabiting it, seem to radiate light and beauty, it would not be surprising to take this adjectival phrase describing the river as a bright as crystal it's have an illuminating aspect to it it's an illuminating river and what uh, what revelation has to say about the river uh is not only a restoration of the beginning paradise but something new it's something unlike ever before hearing those words bright as crystal makes me think of uh, the bioluminescence, like the red tide phenomenon, if you know anything about that. It's popular on some coastlines. If you don't know what red tide is, look it up. But uh, it, it's truly extraordinary. During the day, it doesn't look really appealing. Uh, it just looks like murky water. But when dusk breaks and uh, it's nighttime, the shore seems to light up with a luminescent, usually blue color like neon. 
it's surreal. And this, this happens because phytoplankton are disturbed in the water when there's movement and it, they emit a soft bluish glow due to the specific chemical reactions that take place between the algae and the surrounding oxygen. It's really cool. And again, if you haven't seen it and you don't know what I'm talking about, Google pictures of red tide. It's amazing. Um, unfortunately, though, the sad thing is that uh, red tide actually kills many fish in the water. Yeah, that's a bummer. Uh, but I imagine something like this as a picture of what it talks about it being bright, a bright river, bright as crystal. Uh, but instead of it killing things, it's going to be life-giving to the ecosystem instead of life-threatening. So just uh, my personal little explanation of that first part of Revelation 22. Now let's get to this. This is probably the most uh, pivotal or climactic verse in Revelation. If, if, if we have not already felt that already, check out Revelation 22 verses 3 and 4. That's what we're about to read. Revelation 22, 3 and 4. And every curse will be no more. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will serve him. And they will see his face for themselves. And his name will be on their foreheads. This verse does encapsulate some of the most satisfying language in all of scripture. When it's understood properly, of course. Revelation 23 is iterating that the garden of God will be a life-giving to all creation, and it's void of every curse. And this curse language is inextricably tied to the ramifications resulting from the fall in Genesis 3, and describes that which is not ideal or intended for life. That's been lifted. Death, decay, sadness, sorrow, uh, dysfunction, disorder, chaos, temptation, you name it. That which is not ideal or intended for life, that part of the curse that we innately know that life is not the way it's supposed to be as we look around at life, that's been lifted. That will be lifted. The lifting of the curse means that the presence and the effects of sin will be no more. Death and decay and all those things are unacceptable to God and foreign to the life of heaven. And so they will have no place in the new creation. And so we think about uh, the total work of Christ being nothing less than to redeem us, but also this entire creation from the effects of sin. And that purpose uh, will not be accomplished until God has ushered in the new earth, until paradise lost has become paradise regained and even escalated. And so we need to realize that God will not be satisfied until the entire universe has been purged of all the results, every, all the results of man's fall. So the curse is, li curse is lifted and we will serve God in this new Eden. And the Greek verb for translated here to serve, uh, latruo, carries this idea of service through worship and worship through service. It denotes the meaning to serve as a priest. And don't think of priest in a modern sense. <laughs> Some people have baggage with that. Think about priest in you know, the ancient sense as the representatives who met with God in a unique way. And I like to think of this kind of service, you know, when we think of service, you might think about that in a good way and have great uh, feelings <laughs> attached to that word of service. And some of you might think about that as restrictive and, well, not a great word. But think about service as, you know, when you think of a husband who is smitten and loves his wife, uh, like I do. And not that I'm always perfect at this, but the times when my emotions are very aware of my love for my wife then out of joy, I look for ways to serve her. 
And it's like that. I mean, the, the way in which we serve God ought to be out of joy. If it's ever this just like, I don't know, this religious duty that is detached from all affection and emotion, I mean, is that really service? Or is that just compliance? Did you get that? Sometimes I wonder if our worship, and remember this word for serve is latrue. It's worship through service, service through worship. I wonder if our worship is more compliance instead of this loving, gosh, I'm just, I love you so much. I'm so grateful for all the ways in which you are good to me and serve me. I want to serve you back. How can I do that? And that's what we're looking at here, okay? And now we arrive at the most glorious phrase within this passage in Revelation 22.4 and read this part again. And they, well, us, believers, will see his face for themselves and his name will be on their foreheads. This is speaking of God, the triune God right here. We will see his face. Ever since ancient times, this has been what human beings have always longed for, to see our maker, the one whose image we are handcrafted in the likeness of. And this stems from the ancient belief that to see God's face meant to know him as he actually is. You see, the face expresses who a person is. To see God's face will be to know who God is in his personal being in a really intimate way. This will be uh, the heart of our eternal joy, the heaven of heaven. It was considered in the Old Testament the pinnacle of blessing to have God's face shine on you. See number 625 for that. And so it became part of Jewish liturgy to exhort one another to seek the face of God. You find that in Psalm 24, 6, Psalm 27, 8, Psalm 105, 4, and so on. And so it would seem like a dejecting journey if there was no hope to actually one day see God's face. But thank goodness for the hope of resurrection and new creation and all that God has promised all along because he doesn't just tell us to seek his face in uh, empty hope. We will one day see his face. Revelation 21 and 22 has been a constant unraveling of language that presents God's presence as more and more intimate as we could have ever imagined. It starts off broad but beautiful with God making his home with us in Revelation 21, 1 through 8. Then we discovered that the heavenly city, this new Jerusalem, will be a cosmic holy of holies in Revelation 21, 9 through 27. Finally, there is the highest form of divine intimacy granted to us. God doesn't stop at making his home with us or gracing us with his presence, but he shows us his face. Revelation 22.4, something never afforded to any human prior. Even when God interacted with people directly in the Old Testament, his face was concealed. He manifested himself in forms of light or you know, a cloud or fire or something. Whatever the... <laughs> But never like this, never with his face actually be seen. And, you know, some people say, well, it's God. Uh, does he, You know, it's anthropomorphic to say he has a face. Like, does he really have a face? And, you know, whatever the metaphor or meaning of God having a face, we will see it. <laughs> okay? And we should draw a distinction here uh, for a second between seeing Jesus' face while he was here on earth, which obviously none of us here saw, but, you know, John at this time when he wrote Revelation, 
would have seen. He saw Jesus' face, and yet he's going to say, we're going to see his face, and he's clearly making a difference here. There's a difference between seeing Jesus' face while he was here with no particular glory or such that would make people think he was God walking among them. It's not that as Jesus walked around, people said, oh my gosh, look at him. He's so glorious. He's clearly God. No, that was not the case. He looked like a normal person. Um, yeah, versus when he shows himself in the array of his full majesty, which is now the case. He's, he ascended to heaven and he's fully glorified. He's, he's not hiding his true identity. <laughs> not that I ever would say he was hiding it, but it's not concealed anymore. It's fully revealed. He is the king of heaven. He is the Christ. He is Yahweh. He was God, he's God incarnate. So his glory was concealed when he was among us, but not anymore. And so this promise to see the face of God is our highest hope. To stare upon the creator of the cosmos and gaze upon his beauty is a privilege I think that, if you're like me, we're wildly underestimating. This is the face of God we're talking about here. For all the magnificent, breathtaking, out-of-this-world wonders in the universe that we're able to see with modern technology, none can surpass what the face of God must look like. I mean, think about it. If all the beautiful things we see, I mean, stem from a creator who had a beautiful enough idea to design those things, he is the source of beauty. And I believe that seeing God's face will not only leave us in wonder, which it will, it will also be a transformative experience. 1 John 3, 2 tells us that whenever he is revealed, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. This encourages us that being face-to-face with God will be such a transformative experience that suddenly our sanctification will be complete for we will be like him. And you might, you might be thinking, well, how can this be? How can seeing someone change us uh, so radically down to the core of even maybe our morals, our ethics, and our really inner parts of us changed by seeing someone? And just as a foretaste of this, I know this can be true from an experience I've had on this side of life. As a husband, you know, I'll never forget, and I remember as Ariana, my wife, on our wedding day, walked down the aisle. She was the most beautiful bride. It was, she was stunning. It was, as she was walking down the aisle, it was like no one else was there. I just stared at her, and my peripherals just faded away as I just locked gaze with her. It's like her dad wasn't even standing right next to her. Uh, sorry, Bob, but your daughter. <laughs> and in that moment, nothing else and no one else could allure me away from her. I remember even some of the feelings and what those feelings meant. It was like, hey, that's, that's my bride. I don't want any other woman but her. How could I want anyone else when, look who's walking towards me. I don't care who, if any other woman wants me, I want her. I'll be loyal to her. I'm committed to her. There's like an allegiance with that. I was so overcome in that moment. And so that, of course, you know, is, is an appetizer. It's an imperfect experience. I'm not a perfect husband. There's plenty of times that I'm uh, not, not who I should be as a husband and such. But I love that I can hold on to that memory because I think that really is a picture of something so much more grand. One day, we will gaze upon the quintessence of 
beauty, God himself, and see his face, and nothing, and when we see him, nothing else will rival our loyalty or our affection. This will be the climax of our happiness, the satisfaction of our souls, the heaven of heaven to see his face. You know, I've heard this question many of times. Some have asked, uh, you know, how do we know that we will not sin again like they Adam and Eve did in Eden and mess everything up? How do we know we're not going to sin? And we know this because there will be nothing, absolutely nothing, able to deter us away from the unveiled beauty and goodness of our God. Once we see him as he truly is in his unveiled glory, beholding him like that and him beholding us, nothing will compare. There will be nothing to even imagine as better. And I, I hold on to this experience too. You know, you think of some of your favorite times in your life and whatever that might be. And no matter what it is that is a great experience, in that moment, you could probably think of or imagine something that would make this even better. And, you know, we often say this phrase like, oh my gosh, this is perfect, but you know what would make this even better? Wait, wait a second. If you could imagine something even better, then it's not the highest of perfection. And there's going to be a day, and I believe it's this day, when you see God's face, that you will, your imagination will cease. And I say that because we use our imagination often to find an ideal greater than what the reality of what we're experiencing. We use our imagination because, you know, we're trying to picture a better world and we want to reverse engineer a way to make that happen. But one day we will be face to face with God and our imagination will cease as there will be nothing better. There will be no way to even imagine how to make this experience better. Nothing will rival that. And so sin what sin? What temptation? It, nothing will tempt us because nothing will be better. Everything we were designed to experience will be there. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the great, great preacher, um, said this, and speaking of 1 John 3, 2, they shall see his face, by which I understand two things. First, they shall literally and physically with their risen bodies actually look into the face of Jesus. And secondly, that spiritually their mental faculties shall be enlarged so that they shall be enabled to look into the very heart and soul and character of Christ so as to understand him, his work, his love, his all in all as they never understood him before. Well written, Spurgeon. Previously, I noted that to see God's face implies knowing him personally with extensively intimate knowledge. And this is important. Knowledge is the basis of love. It's the foundation to loving God or to loving even any person. How are we going to love a God whom we don't know? And men, ask yourself, how important is it in knowing your wife and able to being able to effectively love her? And wife, (laughs) women, same thing to you. How are you going to love someone who you don't know? You can only love someone to the extent that you know them. And so this face-to-face relationship, fully knowing God and being fully known by Him, will be a mutual bond in which we can effectively love Him because, because we know Him. The face-to-face relationship we'll, we will have with God is followed up by one more detail. His name will be on our foreheads. The name of God on the forehead is... Well, of course, it's an illustration. It's ultimately an illustration and sign of protection, belonging, and nearness in relationship. 
In the Old Testament, the high priest wore the sacred name of God on his forehead <laughs> and it, it, as he entered into the Holy of Holies and so where God's presence presided. And the golden plate on the forehead would be engraved with the words and it would say this, Holy to Yahweh. And so this illusion of our, God's name being on our foreheads intensifies the notion that all believers will have the priestly privilege of intimate nearness to God, face to face with them. The name of God being written on the Christian highlights the believer being God's beloved possession, belonging to him, marked out by him, and to receive his love and affection. Now, one last verse for today, Revelation 22, 5. And night will be no more, and they will have no need of the light of lamp and the light of sun, because the Lord your God will shine on them, and they will reign forever into eternity. I think we understand that God will finally reign as king over all the creation, but notice that the reign of God is not something we will passively observe. Astonishingly, astonishingly, God will entrust his redeemed people to reign with him. In the ultimate turn of events, the believer who was once a condemned sinner, a rebel against God, becomes by God's transformational love a crowned saint, reigning with Christ the King. We shall share in Christ's royalty, and we shall live like kings with him, and we shall be like this forever and ever. While Revelation 22.3 shows us as priests participating in worshipful service, Revelation 22.5 shows us as kings and queens reigning over new creation with him. This was prophesied back in Daniel 7 uh, when it said that God's people would receive the kingdom and possess it forever and ever, something that comes to fruition in this passage. We will have royal responsibility and royal identity forever. And this seems to restore the image of God uh, that we were created in to its highest glory. Part of imaging God is living with a sense of resolve and uh, with a sense of purpose and satisfaction to that purpose. We're not made just to, you know, be lazy couch potatoes. And this design in us to reign with him shows us that the new creation can be described as a lot of things, but it definitely won't be boring. Boring will be a word of the past, a void of any present meaning, banished from our vocabulary when we get to live out our calling as a kingdom royalty, ruling with King Jesus as his people, but not just his people, as his collective bride. As a wedding is a celebration of a new beginning, so the end of history is the new beginning of life itself. Everything will be made new, and there's a purpose and a recipient who receives this new world. It'll be as Jonathan Edwards wrote, The end of God's creating the world was to prepare a kingdom for his son, for he is the pointed heir of the world, which should remain to all eternity. You see, it was the destiny since before the first creation that the son of God would be the rightful owner of the new creation. Perhaps even the primary reason that Jesus is revealed to mankind as the son of God is to tell us about his functional role as heaven's prince who came down to redeem the world and become the king of the new creation. But what king reigns without his bride? The king of kings has chosen us as his bride and marks us with a new name and we rule forever with him. This marital language between God and his people is all throughout the Bible. This is a constant motif in and all of scripture. 
In fact, just to point out two verses, Isaiah 54, 5 makes a strong appeal that the Lord, your maker, is the spouse of his people. And then one of the most eloquent verses that sums up this theme from the Old Testament is in Hosea 2, 19 through 20, which reads, And I, Yahweh, will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And you see, the New Testament picks up on this theme and says something really provocative. In Ephesians 5.32, in which after discourse on Christian conduct and marriage, uh, then quoting Genesis 2.24 as the foundation of the first marriage, Paul says that this mystery about marriage is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He calls human marriage which is the first marriage, the signpost pointing to the final marriage between Christ and the church. It's like all other metaphors used in the Bible are using the substance to relate to the shadow. For example, Christ and the church are like vines and branches in John 15, but using an already existing natural element for analogous purposes. But none are like the metaphor of marriage in which man and woman are the prototype in the metaphor, but not the archetype, not the final thing. Christ and the church are the reality, the real thing. Man and woman are the shadow, but Christ and the church are the substance of marriage. I'm going to summarize it this way. The first Eden was for Adam and his bride. The final Eden is for Christ and his bride. Did you get that? The first Eden was for Adam and his bride. The final Eden is for Christ and his bride. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin concurs with this conclusion, and he says this, and I think this is great. As Adam had a world made for him, so shall Jesus Christ, this second Adam, Adam being a type of him, was to come, have a world made for him. And this was not good enough for him. He hath a better appointed than which the old Adam had, a new heaven and a new earth, according to promise, as Isaiah 66, 22 says, where the saints shall reign forever. End quote. And I, and. Here's the thing, with this whole like talk about marriage between Christ and his church, it's a little bit mysterious, let's all admit that. I'm willing to admit that Paul was right when he referred to it as a mystery. And although it's revealed uh, that the true marriage is between Christ and the church, there is a lot of you know, abstract mystery to what that means, but one day they'll be clarified. I do not know how this will particularly look. I'm baffled of how... God can uh, and plans to love us all so individually uh, and yet so and equally and yet collectively as a whole. I'm left just to trust that God is so much more infinite and so much more beyond us that um, I can trust that he will have no problem doing that. It's beyond me, to be honest. But it's amazing because uh, I do not know of another world faith or anything that says, hey, your maker, your creator, your redeemer, <laughs> all those things, he not only wants to save you, he wants to, he wants to marry you. God wants to marry you. That's the kind of relationship he wants to have with you. There's no greater intimate relationship between two humans, and to have that be the metaphor of what our relationship's going to be like with, with our God and us, it blows our mind. So we will receive a new name, which was promised back in Revelation 3. And we also saw in this passage that we've read already that we'll have a, uh, his name will be written on our foreheads. 
And we already talked about that, but there's one thing I left out because I wanted to make sure we touched on marriage first. His name being written on us evidences a new and special relationship. And since, since biblical imagery continuously points to the believer's union with Christ being the true form of marriage, I think Christ writing his name on us, on our foreheads, is previewed by how, in modern American culture, the woman being wed takes on the man's last name, and thus inherits all that he has and all that he is. In a similar fashion, Christ wishes to love his bride with all he is and giving her all that he has. That's why when it says, and we will reign with him forever into eternity, it's not that he says, cool, I've saved you, go sit over here as I reign as king over all of my subjects. Although Christ, yes, he will be king. We're not equal to him by any sort of way, but yet in status, in some sort of way, he takes us as his bride and we will reign with him as king. We will have royal status, royal responsibility, And that's why I said again, man, isn't the new creation just like this everlasting, unending adventure? How could it not? We have to reign. We are given responsibility to reign over a whole new creation. That's going to be exciting. But we get to do it with God and with him as his spouse. You know, our, our salvation begins with this uh, realization of our pressing need for Jesus. But you know, as years go by and we serve in fellowship with Jesus, he becomes so much more to us than a need. You know, one day we'll even probably think or say, at first I needed you, but now I desire you. I have no love for anyone or anything the way I have for you. But the crazy thing is, no matter how affectionate, how much our love grows for King Jesus, one day we're going to see his face. One day we're going to look into the face of our creator and redeemer and we'll look into his eyes and I imagine him saying something like this to us. I spoke vows to you before you were born. I sang words to you before I made you. I loved you in eternity past. My love has no beginning and it has no end. Enter into my happiness. Be made new. Be my bride reign with me forever. And so the life of the new world is the one in which the foreshadow of the first creation comes to fruition in the new. The first Eden with all of its glory does not even compare to the final Eden with all of its glory. The world of heaven marries our world. The king of heaven marries us. And we can rest in these words. Those who are married to Jesus, Spurgeon says, will be endlessly happy.